This is Warrior Podcast, changing the world by introducing warriors to the warrior god. I'm your host, Elizabeth Andrade, and Connor Shanahan is almost back in the studio. This is your last week, I believe. It should be your last week away from the studio. Are you excited to be back? Actually, by the time that this is released, right, I should be either home or on my way home. That's true. I could not be more excited. Very eager to get back to my wife. Very eager to get back to the studio with you and the team. And yeah, excited. Excited to wrap up my little military training here and get on back to uh, the real world, the quote unquote real world. Yeah, it's going to be great. So last week on our last episode, we began the discussion of the end times. And today, as Mm. promised, we will be discussing a little more into the different views of things such as the rapture, tribulation, and the millennium. You're going to learn something today, warrior. You're going to learn something today. That's true. So, but before we get into that, I just think that it would be important to start off with a little recap from last week. And I'm going to reread the quote from last week's episode by Michael Kruger. So let us be eschatological Christians not in an effort to win debates about which millennial view is correct, but in an effort to proclaim hope to a world that desperately needs it. So good. So good. Such a timely reminder for us, like we discussed last week, first in 2020, and almost all of us, if not all of us, have had a tough year. And when we talk about the end times, it's it's tempting for us to get caught up in some of the details that we'll discuss today. And so that's why we want to continually reframe and remind ourselves of this truth that the purpose of eschatology, the purpose of the study of the end times, the purpose of looking at the book of Revelation is to see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and then to proclaim that hope to a world that desperately needs it. So while we will get into some of the weeds today, while we will discuss you know, some of these details. And like we said, you're going to learn something today. <laughs> and we're excited about that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to study God's word and to try to glean truth from it. We do want to continually remind ourselves that the main point of this conversation, the main point of Christian eschatology is the blessed hope that we have in the, uh, the assured return of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so I think it's also important to remember that this series is about the story of the Bible. That's what we're doing here. So the story of the Bible, as we have been discussing, is that God created a world and it was good. And he created man and he said it was very good. Man, however, messed up and brought sin into the world. When sin was brought into the world, the whole creation was fractured. Thankfully, God didn't leave us there. He sent a savior for us who was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and resurrected. And now he rules and reigns in heaven and one day he will return again. And that's the part of the story we're talking about. Um, The part where Jesus comes back, saves the world, sin is gone, and for those who believe in him, they will live happily ever after, I guess, so to say. (laughs) The way that God intended it to be. It's the greatest story ever, because it's true. And again, we're gonna continually harp on that point that that is the main point. The return of Jesus Christ to restore all things and for believers to dwell with him and live with him and worship him and experience joy in his presence forever. That's our hope, and that's the main point. And all Christians can agree on that, right? Like as we look at the Apostles' Creed, as we look at some of the historic creeds and confessions of the church throughout the years, all Christians can agree that Jesus will return. All Christians can agree that Jesus will restore the world to its original design. All Christians can agree that believers will reign and rule and dwell with God forever in paradise. Beyond that, though, some of the details of exactly how Christ will return, what will happen when he returns, what his return will look like, 
are a little hazy or a little bit more debated. And uh, that's kind of where our conversation is going today. So before we do that, before we dive into Revelation and look at probably one of the most contested passages that I think summarizes and frames this conversation quite well, I think it's important to bring up just the notion of genre when it comes to reading scripture. We have mentioned a few Bible reading rules here on this podcast so far. Number one being context, right? When you're trying Mm -hmm. to understand a passage, you want to understand its context. It's immediate context. It's context within the grand story of the Bible. And our second rule for reading scripture is Christ, Mm -hmm. right? In Luke 24, Jesus himself gives us a phenomenal lesson on how to read the Bible and says that everything points to him. That all, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, all Scripture points to Jesus Christ. So he is the main point. And that's a, that's a very important rule to keep in mind as we look at Revelation. And as we've said, the, the whole purpose of Revelation is to say that Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. Jesus will return, and he will usher in heaven on earth. Let me introduce, though, a third Bible reading rule, which is to understand the genre of the literature that you are reading, okay? So each biblical letter or each biblical book has a particular genre in which it's written, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So for example, some of Paul's letters are are simply that. I think think they're letters. Some of the stories in the Old Testament are historical narrative, where the author is simply recording the events of history, not necessarily commenting on what God thought of what was happening, but simply recording the events of history. That's called a historical narrative. We also see poems throughout Scripture, like in the Psalms, at certain parts in the Old Testament, we see poetry. That's a genre of Scripture. And here in Revelation, the genre that we're looking at is called apocalyptic. It's a piece of apocalyptic literature. And some of the things that we should expect to see within apocalyptic literature is metaphor, allegory great descriptive words used to describe a coming event or an event that is imminent or or an event that's already happened. Hopefully that makes sense. And I think that that's just important to keep in mind. As we look at Revelation, it's it's simply important to keep that in mind that because of the genre of what we're reading here, it's important to just keep that at the forefront of your mind that we should expect some hyperbole. We should expect some metaphors. We should expect some allegory. We should expect some pictures to be painted to present the events that are being described. And I bring that up to say this. This might sound like a controversial point. There are many who would say that we as Christians need to read the Bible literally, literally. And that sounds really good, right? That sounds really good. Unfortunately, there are there are oftentimes in Scripture that we cannot read the Bible literally. Instead, we have to read it literally. We need to read it in light of its genre. So maybe an example of this uh, would be John 15, 1 through 5, which says, and this is Jesus talking, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So I'm pretty sure we're not actually you know, branches. Yeah, that's the perfect example because yeah, people start to get a little bit nervous when you start saying, well, we don't really take the Bible literally. Right. People start to get a little bit nervous and rightfully so. However, those same people that get nervous 
automatically when they read this passage in John 15 or any other example in Scripture, know that Jesus is using a metaphor here, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a part of literature. And so in order to read this passage correctly, you have to read it literately in light of its genre. And here Jesus is using a metaphor. Jesus is not literally a vine. We are not literally tree branches. However, Jesus is literally our source of life, our source of all things. And he uses a metaphor to communicate that true point. So I hope that makes sense. Like, hopefully that's not perspective shattering, but uh, it's not always helpful to dogmatically, no matter what, I'm going to read the Bible literally when there's a lot of metaphor and there's a lot of poetry and there's a lot of beautiful things that are used to express the truths of our faith. I hope that makes sense. And so that's important to keep in mind as we get to Revelation. And I think we mentioned this last week, Elizabeth. Yeah. But what Revelation literally is, is the Apostle John receiving a vision from the Lord. So the Apostle John then, as he's seeing this grand vision of the end of all things and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he's getting literally a glimpse of heaven. And so this guy is just trying his best best. <laughs> Poor John is just trying his best to, and obviously he's empowered by the Spirit as he does mm-hmm. this, but he is he's trying his best to use the language he knows to describe the grandiose, phenomenal, glorious things that he has seen. Again, hopefully that makes sense. And as we approach Revelation then, we should expect to see some apocalyptic language. We should expect to see some metaphor. We, sh- we don't have to be scared at the idea of not taking everything we read dogmatically, literally. We should understand that oftentimes the Spirit of God uses rich, beautiful literature in order to communicate truth. And especially as we look at Revelation, which is John trying to interpret this vision that he's been given from the Lord, we should interpret this in light of its context, in light of Christ, and in light of its genre. Right. So keeping all this in mind, um, do you want to go ahead and dive into that scripture? Let's do it. So today we got a big one. Uh, this is Revelation nineteen eleven through twenty one five. And let me um, let me just say before you get into that, it is a big one. Yeah, it is a big one. So mm-hmm. buckle up, fam. But this passage summarizes, and I think really well summarizes and highlights all of the kind of controversial or tricky positions that we're going to unpack for you. So everything that we're about to talk about, all of the different positions on what is a rapture, what is the tribulation, what do we do with these millennial positions, all of those things where you're going to learn some phenomenal information to help you feel way more confident as you approach this conversation on the end times, they're rooted in this passage. So try to pay attention, try to pick up on these and uh, be blessed by Sister Elizabeth reading the Word of God for us. All right. Um, yeah, and also just that, like we said in the beginning, you know, Jesus is is the center of it all, and, that, and that's the most important thing, that we do have hope in him regardless. Yes. All right, here we go. Revelation 19, starting in 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And let me just pause you, Elizabeth, quickly and throw in, I mean, how much metaphorical and apocalyptic language do we see just in those first couple of verses? Pretty sure there's at least one example in every sentence. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> so we have eyes like a fiery flame, many crowns, all these things. Like, just keep that in mind as we're reading. This is, this is metaphorical language. This is descriptive, beautiful, glorious language that John is using to try to describe what he's seeing. So then continuing on in 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders and the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. I don't know if that sounds very appetizing to me. Yeah, definitely not me. That's not what I'm ordering. Uh, <laughs> my first trip back to a restaurant after COVID disappears. <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing in verse 19. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, along with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of his saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and hades gave up the dead that were in them each one was judged according to their works death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Amen. Amen. Thank you, You're Elizabeth, welcome. for reading all that for us. You're welcome. That's a mouthful, huh? It was a little bit. A little bit. A little bit, but we made it. We made it. <laughs> we and made you, it. warrior, made it as well. Thank you for persevering. I mean, it's so important for us to root everything that we talk about now in that 21, 1 through 5, right? Amen. Everything that we just read, all this stuff about the beast, the false prophet, the mark of the beast, the 1,000 years that we heard several times talked about, all of that stuff pales in comparison to the significance and importance of the, the factual reality and promise that Christ will return, that Christ will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Christ will take away all grief and suffering and pain, and he will usher you into his presence to live with him in fullness of joy forever and ever. That's the main point. We're going to keep sticking and reiterating to that because no matter where you land on any of these other issues, it's so important for Christians to be united in our loud and clear, firm affirmation that Christ will return and that we will dwell with him forever. Amen. Um, now, as we get into these different uh, discussions that we can maybe disagree on a little bit, I'm going to read a quote from John Piper before we get into that. Um, and the quote says, let me stress that the disagreement over pre- and post-tribulationism is not one that I think should threaten our fellowship. It should not be divisive. The things on which we agree are so stupendous as to overwhelm our hearts in common love for the Lord and his appearing. Let us not make the second coming a center of controversy, but a cause for worship and earnest hope and liberating confidence for the ministry before us. Amen and amen. We're going to keep saying it, fam. The, the hope is in Jesus. Now then, as we transition, bum, 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 drum roll, please. The first point of discussion is the rapture. Yeah, we're going to zoom out a little bit, right? The rapture is not mentioned here in Revelation 19 and 20, but this is a common idea that people often associate with the end times. And now what's interesting, I'm going to throw a little shot here. I'm going to put my cards on the table and wade into some controversy. As I said, the rapture is not mentioned here in Revelation 19 and 20. And it's also not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> now that was said a little bit aggressively and I apologize for that. I love you. <laughs> I do want to stress that this, so let's define the idea of the rapture. Yeah. What is the rapture? What, what is that? Often the rapture gets taught as this idea that, that believers, Christians will be raptured or caught up into heaven, plucked from the earth before all of this end times madness kicks off. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is actually probably one of the most commonly held viewpoints by your average churchgoer, because there have been some famous movies made over the years. There have been some famous books written over the years that have clearly highlighted and emphasized this point, because honestly, it makes for a good movie. Right. Mm -hmm. If many, many people are just disappearing from Earth and then the rest of the Earth gets spiraled into this chaos with the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and tribulation and famine and war and all this destruction i mean that's that's straight up a hollywood movie plot right there mm -hmm. yeah so that's the basic premise of the rapture is that believers will be caught up before any tribulation happens to be fair there are some people that believe in a post tribulation rapture and to that point we should probably just say listen there are so many nuanced views of everything that we're going to talk about with our three main points as elizabeth said being we're going to talk about the rapture we're going to talk about that's number one number two we're going to talk about tribulation number three we're going to talk about millennium this idea of the 1000 years 
um, because these are the three main hitters, the three main items that are commonly debated. And where you land on these three items will determine your view of the end times, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. So if the if the rapture is not mentioned then in scripture, where does this idea come from? Yes. So the idea comes from First Thessalonians chapter four, verse seventeen. All right. First Thessalonians four seventeen says, Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So to be fair, at first reading, that sounds like a rapture to me, right? Uh-huh. Yes. It does. Those who are alive who are still left will be caught up together with the Lord. Um, in the clouds, they'll meet in the air, and so that they're with the Lord. And that certainly sounds like this idea of the rapture. So, th- so this is this is actually only one of two places where this idea of the rapture seems to be clearly taught. It, again, it's it's understandable to read this and and to view like the, the verse before this talks about the archangel's voice, the trumpet of God, the dead being raised in Christ. So there's a lot going on here. However, when you look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and you study it, I think it's pretty clear. The Greek word used here for meeting, the word that we translate as meeting, is used in two other places in the New Testament. Those places are Matthew 25, verse 6. Warrior, if you're feeling crazy, go ahead and pull that up and look at it for yourself. The other one is Acts chapter 28, verse 15. Okay, In both of those places, this word is used to describe a meeting in which people go out to meet a dignitary or a royal person or somebody important and then accompany them back to the place from which they came out okay and in context one of the other places that it's used in matthew 25 6 is a parable about the second coming it's a parable about the second coming of jesus in which people will go out meet him and then come back down to the earth so i think me personally with all due respect i think that's clear evidence to say that there is there is nothing happening where believers are caught up from the earth and they are like kept safe from the suffering on earth. If anything, like, again, there's different positions here on the rapture. And I do want to say that there, there are many smart people that would still cling to this and, and teach this idea of the rapture. And it is a plausible viewpoint. It's certainly plausible because, again, upon first reading of First Thessalonians 4.17, it seems like this idea of the rapture would make sense. Yeah. And so full stop there. That's entirely possible. It's plausible. What I'm saying is I'm putting my cards on the table a little bit because this is one that I feel kind of strongly about that if you look into just a little bit, if you just look into this verse a little bit, I think it's pretty clear that there's something different going on. That at the very least, this idea is is talking about something happening at the second coming where believers are raptured to meet the Lord, but in the simultaneous event, they then welcome him back down to earth, as in welcoming the king back to his kingdom, yeah. to where the Lord then establishes his kingdom on earth, restores the world, gets to that Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth kind of idea. And then the last thing I would say on the idea of the rapture is that, like, if you read scripture, there is nothing, there is there is no evidence or hint that believers should expect to be kept from tribulation, uh-huh. right? Like, if you even look at the, the life of Jesus Christ, he was beaten and crucified. If you look at all of his disciples, according to church history, all of the disciples of Jesus were, like, brutally murdered, yeah. okay? Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was shipwrecked several times, beaten several times, ended up getting killed. All of Jesus's disciples died badly. There is nothing in scripture that says that Christians should 
expect to be to live a safe healthy prosperous life right we would reject that Mm -hmm. and so i just i just even the very idea of a rapture itself that believers are to be plucked from the earth and kept safe from any tribulation that happens here that to me does not seem to be something that coincides with the rest of scripture and then lastly on this note of the rapture revelation 310 is the second place where people will go to try to prove this idea or say that christians will be kept free from suffering in the world And so Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, says this. This is the words of Jesus. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So what could that mean then? Yeah, because again, at first reading, that sounds like, okay, uh, sounds like Jesus is going to take Christians from the world and then test the rest of the world, but keep Christians safe. Mm Mm-hmm. However, again, let me say that this is an entirely plausible viewpoint. You're not like anti people who believe in the rapture. You're just very strong about this viewpoint that. Yeah, I'm not. It is entirely possible. It is a plausible viewpoint. And many people that are smarter than me hold to this idea of the rapture. I went to a school where the rapture theology was taught like as if like you have to accept this or else you're not a Christian. And so I think maybe that's why I have such a strong opinion on it, because <laughs> because the, the, the biblical evidence, in my opinion, is just so weak. And so I just want to free people from that. I think that that a lot of people get this rapture theology from movies. They get it from the left behind mm-hmm. movies or they get it from books that they've read growing up. And so I'm just maybe trying to encourage us to look beyond what other people have told us yeah. and examine the scriptural evidence. Well, and we know that the things to ensure that you are a Christian is that, you know, you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and that he will come again. Those are the essentials, really. And there's a lot of nuances in between that. And I believe that looking at the scriptures and, you know, asking God to reveal these things to us because it's in the end it's all about what god says not what man says it is it is and that's a great point that's a great point so on that note on what on what the lord says after we just read revelation 3:10 where it sounds like jesus will take his followers from the world to keep them from the hour of testing that comes near i want to read another verse from the new testament that has similar language to kind of paint the picture of what i think is is actually happening there and so this is from john 17 This is Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for future Christians. And Jesus himself says this in his prayer to God the Father. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There are a couple other places that paint this picture, but I think that's what's happening. Jesus is not saying that he's going to take his disciples or Christians out of the world so that they're kept safe from suffering. Rather, Jesus is promising to be with his people no matter what comes so that they will be satisfied and protected in him. Come what may, even if that means death, they will be kept in the presence of God in life and in death. And the call of the Christian life on this earth is is pretty much to die to yourself and live an uncomfortable life. It's not to comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, certainly there's joy to be experienced now in the presence yeah. of God and there's joy to be experienced in the common grace that he gives us in good food, good drink, good community with friends. Definitely. But without a doubt, we're not promised an easy life. To your point, we're not promised an easy life. What we are promised is that the presence of God will be with us, that Christ himself will sustain us. And we certainly have that reward at the end of the finish line where we will live with him forever and ever. And that is the main point of this conversation. Amen. It all goes back to that. (laughs) The hope we have. (laughs) That's right. The hope we have in Christ. So I think that's all I have to say about the rapture. I just, that's a commonly understood idea that people think is integral or essential to this conversation. 
And I want to push back on that a little bit and ask, where are we getting our theology mm-hmm. from? Are we getting it from a movie that we saw when we were a kid? Or are we digging into the scriptures, asking the spirit for wisdom and considering what the story of the Bible would, would have for us in this conversation? That's the important thing is that we need to make sure that our theology comes from the Bible. Amen. That's that's what we're about here at uh, the Old Warrior Podcast. That's what we're all about. We are theologians. Come on. You're a theologian, Elizabeth. I'm a and theologian. you're listening are theologians. <laughs> we need to take our jobs seriously facts moving on to the next viewpoint number two you still with us warrior you still with us number two we're going to talk about the idea of tribulation yes the tribulation what is the tribulation so this idea of tribulation okay so as we begin to think about the end times there's again it kind of goes hand in hand with the rapture this idea of seven years of tribulation on earth have you heard anybody teach that or heard that idea before yes yes i have okay so that idea is actually not found in the New Testament at all. Mm-hmm. We're just popping balloons left and right here. <laughs> that idea of seven years of tribulation is not a New Testament teaching. It actually comes from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Now, we don't, we don't have to go there. We don't have to dig into that. If you want to look more on that, we'll have some resources to recommend to you, Warrior, at the end of this podcast. Um, but just know that, that this idea of seven years of tribulation is a prophecy given to Daniel in the Old Testament. And... It's a very complicated prophecy where it includes these 70 weeks that will come to pass until the arrival of Christ. Now, that happened, right? Like there is some interesting dating that we can do to see that the prophecies given to Daniel have come true in the the time period of the arrival of Christ. Like the specific years given to Daniel are exactly the specific years that it took for Christ to be born, which is wild and scandalous and amazing, and we should praise God for that. People, though, would then take, would say that, okay, well, of these 70 years, 69 of them have happened, and we're waiting on one week to come in the future where these seven years of tribulation will then happen. So again, entirely possible, Mm -hmm. all right? Entirely possible, totally plausible. But it is interesting to me that we're going to say a prophecy that predicted 70 years has all of a sudden paused at the end of the 69 because we're waiting for that last one to kind of come through, if that makes sense. So again, totally possible. That is one perspective that seven years of tribulation are still to come here. Some people think that. Some people think that it has actually already been fulfilled in the time of Daniel. Now, as we go into the New Testament, though, there does seem to be some language regarding uh, tribulation perhaps most famously seen from the words of Jesus himself. That seems like a pretty credible source to me. Yeah. And he talks about this stuff in uh, in Matthew chapter 24. Yeah, and this is uh, Matthew 24, 21 through 34, which says, For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out there, or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Wherever the carcass is, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all of the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that is, and again, thank you, Elizabeth, for just dropping scripture on the warrior. No problem. Um, That is one of the probably the clearest teachings of tribulation in the New Testament. And I want you to, if you wouldn't mind, Elizabeth, to read verse 34 one more time for us. Okay, verse 34 says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. What does that mean? Well, I have a note on that in my uh, my study Bible for verse 34, which says that all these things must refer to the same event as all these things in verse 33, which occur before the second coming. So Jesus cannot be predicting his return within this generation, i.e. the lifetime of his followers. Instead, he must be promising that all of the preliminary events, including the destruction of Jerusalem, which must take place before he can return, will take place within about a 40-year period of time, from AD 70 on. Yeah, that's good. No, that's that's exactly where I wanted to go. That's spot on. So so to summarize what you just said there, and, and this is like a scandalous verse. Like this verse rocks people because you see all of this in, in chapter 24 of Matthew. You see all these things happen. And you even see, we could have started earlier in verse 15, talking about the great tribulation and specifically the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Mm -hmm. So you see the prophecies of Daniel being clearly explained and told here in Matthew 24. And then it goes through all this doom and gloom. Destruction is coming. And then Jesus says, verse 34. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus, after describing this destruction and the coming trials, he then says this generation will not pass away, which I think is a clear teaching that all of this thus far in Matthew 24 up to at least verse 34 is a prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome in AD 70. That was an important historical event. If you want to talk a little bit about what kind of happened from a historical standpoint. This is pure history. This is pure history, undisputed fact that that Rome raided and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, destroyed the temple, set up their little Roman ensigns to worship the emperor in the temple of God. I think a lot of this, you know, abomination of desolation language is clearly about that, about the Roman ensigns, with their idolatrous emblems of of the emperor after they've conquered Jerusalem and set those up in God's holy city. Jerusalem was destroyed. Now think about that, like of all the history that we have so far in the Old Testament of God's people and God dwelling with his people and the significance of Israel and the significance of Jerusalem, for all of that to be destroyed, for all of that to be taken over by Rome in AD 70, that is like for them, infinitely more catastrophic than 9-11 is to us. Everything they had was destroyed. Their whole country was no more after that. Like this is a world-changing, perspective-shattering event for God's people. And so sometimes when, when like us today, when we start to talk about, I think these things of tribulation and Matthew 24, I think these are talking about AD 70, it just doesn't quite hit. Some of us are hesitant to believe that because it doesn't seem as significant. Like the words used by Jesus here in Matthew 24 seem very significant. And when we say, well, actually, they've already happened in AD 70, that doesn't quite hit. That doesn't quite feel as powerful. And yet it would for a Jewish person. 
it would for an Israelite at this time. This was a massive world-shaping, world-changing event when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem in 87. This would feel like the end of the world for them. It was. It literally, it was the end of their nation, the end of their country, which was supposed to be God's nation, right? This is absolutely the end of the world for many people at this time. So in all of that, right, what's the point? In all of that, I think the point is twofold. One, a lot of what we see written in scripture about tribulation, about the end times, it takes some research, right? It's not as okay, this says there's going to be a coming tribulation. And I saw a movie one time where that's what happened. And therefore, that's exactly what's going to happen. I think that there's often some, there's a lot of hints in the text, like that verse 34 of Matthew 24. And I think there's some there's some clear evidence here that, that a lot of this language is talking about the destruction of, of Jerusalem in AD 70. But also, I think it, that probably brings up the second point, which is that Christians should not Again, we've talked about this already with our with our rapture talk, but Christians should not expect to be saved from suffering. And in that, though, we have the sweet, like, don't hear a doom and gloom message here. Jesus Christ will minister to you. He will protect you. He will guard you and keep you. Even in the midst of, of horrible circumstances, the offer of Christ is to find contentment and peace and satisfaction in him, in his presence, regardless of what's going on around you. I mean, I think of the Apostle Paul writing the letter uh, uh, Philippians while he's in prison, right? And that's where he says, I have learned what it is to have a lot. I've learned what it is to have a little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about contentment there. The, the letter of Philippians is a guide to contentment in the midst of terrible circumstances, because that's where Paul found himself. And in the same way, like that is a theme that we see throughout scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, cover to cover, that Christians should not be surprised at suffering, but rather should be expectant for God to minister to them, to keep them, to guard them, and to be with them, even when their circumstances are incredibly difficult. And I think it was Paul also who said um, that the joy that's coming cannot even compare to the present sufferings. In other words, like whatever we experience on earth will, when we receive our, our glory in Christ, will be nothing. Like we won't even remember it because it cannot even be compared to the joy that we will experience. Very much well said. Yeah, that's Romans 8, 18. There we go. Where Paul says, for I consider that the present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's in store for us. And it brings us back to your point of that Revelation 21. The glory that's in store for us is Jesus Christ himself wiping away every tear from our eyes, taking away all suffering, all pain, all grief, and giving us a new life in him where we will we will live with him and worship him and experience joy in a new, remade, paradise forever. That is our hope. So now we move on into the millennium. We do indeed. So we will continue on. We'll move into the millennium. Just to recap real quick, rapture, entirely possible that that is still to come. It's also entirely possible that that is a, a misunderstanding of what it means for Christians to welcome the kingdom of God into earth, right? To, to welcome in the king as he remakes this earth. It's entirely possible that the rapture is is not something that's going to happen in the future. Tribulation as well, again, entirely possible. This is something that's still to come, something that Christians should, one viewpoint, expect to be raptured from, a different viewpoint, expect to persevere with the power of Christ, or a third viewpoint, potentially this has already happened. This has already been fulfilled in AD 70. Can I get an amen that this is the most confusing thing to talk about ever? <laughs> amen. <laughs> this is the most difficult uh, doctrine probably to discuss because there's so many nuanced positions. Um, but that's the idea of tribulation. And then really where all of this kind of comes to fruition, where all of this is applicable, is in the different views of the millennium, 
Okay. So we just kind of jumped all over the place in the Bible. Let's get back to revelation. Let's get back to the main event, the entree, the steak dinner, and uh, talk about the different views of what do we do with the 1000 years that are mentioned in revelation in, in the passage that we already read revelation 19 through 21. So in revelation verse 20, Verses four through five is what I'm reading. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of their word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there and in elsewhere as well, if you go one more verse in six, you see another mention of a thousand years. You go another verse in seven, you see another mention of a thousand years. This is this is probably the most confusing thing to place, right? It's it's one of the one of the most difficult things to understand exactly what is happening here. And um how you view rapture and how you view tribulation often depends upon your understanding of what to do with this one thousand years. Okay. Okay. Again, there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of different positions, even within the main positions. And we could go on for hours. Like we could literally do an entire podcast period, like the end times podcast. We don't talk about anything else other than the end times. <laughs> you can easily do that and you can never run out of fresh content to, to discuss. So here I'm just going to highlight the three main views of what to do with this 1000 years, how that affects your view of rapture tribulation. And then hopefully you're still with us. And we'll wrap it up and talk about some hope and talk about some uh, some applications that we can take with us as we go. Sound good? All right, let's dive in. Let's dive in, fam. So first view of what to do with these 1,000 years is that this is a literal, for the most part, for the most part in this view, again, there's a lot of nuance. We're going to call this viewpoint pre-millennial. Millennium, literally meaning 1,000 years, mm-hmm. pre literally meaning before. And so therefore this viewpoint thinks that Christ will return pre or before a 1000 year literal reign. Okay. So that's most simply, that's what it means. Christ will return before the 1000 years. Most often, again, this crew, this crew thinks that the 1000 year reign will be uh, literal. And this crew will most often think that things like rapture and tribulation will happen before that return of Christ and before the 1000 year reign. Most often, second camp will be a millennial. Okay, so this crew would think that the millennium, this one thousand years mentioned in Revelation, would be a something that's happening now, not necessarily a literal one thousand year earthly reign on earth, but rather that Christ is reigning right now in heaven for this metaphorical, allegorical one thousand years before he returns, and upon his return, he will usher in. Uh, what we see in Revelation 21, this new heavens, new earth, peace on earth, shalom forever kind of understanding. Mm-hmm. Third, and I know this is like super overview. Obviously, these are way more complicated. Third overview is the post-millennium, which would view uh, this idea that the millennium will come, this reign will come through the success of the gospel. So post-millennialists believe that Christians will be so successful in sharing the gospel that they will gradually convert the world and the entire world. And they're very optimistic and they will usher in this golden age of the church. And after this long period, this 1000 years of peace and righteousness, there will be an outbreak of evil. And then Christ will come in person to usher in that revelation 21. I will say that there were a lot of 
post-millennialists, a lot of really optimistic people until the two major world wars, <laughs> until World War One and World War Two. And after that, the amount of optimistic Christians went went downhill. <laughs> and post-millennial, mm-hmm. post-millennialism is probably the least common viewpoint that Christians would hold these days. This is such a complicated topic, yeah. and uh, these are the three major overviews. But it's important to know too that, like, while we can't be certain on this issue really like none of these are guesses either all of them look at different verses in scripture all of these are people's best attempts at trying to deal with some of these difficult metaphorical allegorical passages trying to deal with some of these difficult prophecies that we see in daniel trying to deal with some language used by jesus and in his ministry on earth and trying to package those together in order to form an understanding of what it might look like when he returns it's a hard thing to do And uh, there's different ways for Christians to do it and to do it faithfully. And I guess our goal here was just to provide you with that knowledge (laughs) that there are different viewpoints and there are reasons for them. But again, our our main hope and what should unite us as Christians is the fact that Christ will return. And he wins. And he wins, man. He wins. Jesus wins in the end, no matter what this 1,000 years looks like, no matter if there's a tribulation to come, no matter if there's a rapture to come or not. Jesus will return. Jesus will win. Jesus will conquer sin and death. And of that, we can be completely sure. Yeah. And and because of that, we don't have to look at the end times as something that brings fear into our hearts because we know that that's going to be the best part of our existence when we are in the presence of God forever. Amen. It is. It absolutely is going to be the best part of our existence. And that is the hope that we have to come. Before we close, let me just try to maybe tie in some of these ideas of rapture and tribulation to each of these millennial views. It's a hard thing to do, so please be patient with me. But you know, help me out. But here's like, if you're if you're at the end of this, and thinking like, man, that was so unhelpful. Like, I just want to know what is it going to look like? What is it going to look like when Jesus returns? What's the end of the world going to look like? Within these three kind of millennial viewpoints, the pre-millennialist viewpoint, where Christ will return before this one thousand year reign, they would typically see the future as happening like option A, uh, there will be a rapture. Christians will be raptured up into heaven. Then there will be seven years of tribulation on earth things will be terrible antichrist will rise to power then at the end of those seven years christ will return and after some more time things will all be made right that's one option within the pre-millennial crowd another option within the pre-millennial crowd is that there will be no rapture there will be the the seven years of tribulation there will be the antichrist there will be these terrible things happening on earth at the end of all that tribulation christ will return and establish that revelation 21 hope that we're all looking forward to all right so that's that's one option that's kind of the premillennial view of the end times the amillennial view is one that would simply say that we are waiting for the return of christ that christ will return his return is imminent and when he returns he will usher in the revelation 21 paradise this view would definitely deny a rapture and they would say that we are simply meant to engage this world with the gospel, and we are simply waiting on the return of Christ, and when he returns, it will be glorious. But they would emphasize the fact that Christ is reigning now in heaven and not necessarily waiting for any literal 1,000-year reign or anything related to that. Lastly, the post-millennial view would, again, actually that one's pretty self-explanatory within the view. They would think that um, everything's going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be golden, and the church will convert the world. There will be this great success of the gospel before this period of uh, of maybe this outbreak of evil with this weird verse of Satan being released after a certain time, after the 1,000 years. That's how they would try to make sense of that. But 
those are kind of some of the major viewpoints. Obviously, there's infinitely more nuance to each of those. There's infinitely more detail that we can go into. But hopefully, that is somewhat of a helpful overview of how different people view the events to come at the end of time. I think that while it's important to study these things because it is scripture and while it's important to gain knowledge about these things, another point to realize is important is that we don't really have time to waste. Jesus will return. He will come again. And we want to be ready for that. A life in Christ, we can experience joy here on earth. That is a glimpse of what we will experience in heaven. In other words, giving our lives to Jesus, being ready for his return, the assurance of our salvation is a glimpse of what our future will hold. Yeah, that's really well said. And, and that's super important to hold firmly in this conversation. That Again, no matter what you think about the 1,000 years, no matter what you think about the rapture, no matter what you think about the tribulation, maybe you've never thought about any of those things ever. And that's okay, <laughs> because all we really need to think about, as Elizabeth said, is how is your relationship with Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you believe in him? Do you believe that he died on the cross to take your sins, the judgment for your sins, so that you could live forever with him? so that you can be reconciled to the Father now, gifted the Holy Spirit now, experience the joy in His presence now, and also experience that joy forever and evermore. That is primary. That is absolutely primary. And that is a wonderful point. That that's, that's what we should really be reminded of and prompted to consider in this conversation. And also, I just wanted to mention, we know that this was a lot of information and there is a lot of details and nuances to all of this. Because of that, we will be putting together an article on our website, wgmhq.org, just with some references and links to articles that go into more detail and more depth about these ideas and these views. Yes, we will. There will be at least four or five videos and articles that we'll post on there. Just kind of some references and resources that if you are either thoroughly confused after listening to us babble for this amount of time, or hopefully, Lord willing, you're interested and uh, looking for uh, more ways to dive in and to understand the, the intricacies of this conversation, then we'll, uh, we'll definitely link some resources there for you. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to trust in Christ, or if you want to learn more about making Him the authority over your life, or if you want to learn more about us, send us a message on our Instagram at WGMHQ. That's WGMHQ. We will make sure that someone gets in touch with you. This has been Warrior Podcast with Connor Shanahan. Warrior God Ministries' mission is to change the world by making disciples among military members and first responders and equipping them to be disciple makers and missionaries in their respective communities for the glory of Jesus Christ.